Welcome to Daniel's Policy. I'm Charlene. I'm Crispin. And this is our week in review. Daniel's Policy is a channel aimed at intelligent people where we discuss important issues facing life and society. But first start, how are you, Crispin? Good. Good. I mean, what a week. So, I mean, I'm good. A lot of terrible things have happened. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Afghanistan isn't great. Yeah. Uh, what's happening with Australia isn't great. Mm-hmm. Uh, What's happened to Lithuania with China isn't great. Mm. Um, so we've talked about a lot of sort of less than upbeat issues. Mm. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm fine. I have been trying to, you know, in this world of, of where all the countries in lockdown and, and the, the, the disease is continuing to spread and people aren't sure what the future is mm. holding, mm. I have been holding out hope that next year I'll be able to get uh, to Europe for various reasons, you know, go to Lithuania and other places, but also mm. get on a cruise ship. Mm. I never thought I would want to be on a cruise because I thought, why, yeah, why spend all that money? It. Yeah, why, why spend all that money on a cruise when you could just go to the places you want to go to? Yeah. But then I travelled on a cruise ship, not to be on the cruise, but to get from A to B. And I realised in those few days mm-hmm. that, Oh, I get it now. The hotel just rocks up to where you want to be. You don't have to unpack. You don't have to do yeah. anything. You just step off and you go and explore and then you get back on and, and there's all the yeah. food and everything. So yeah. I'm, and it's I'm always looking forward to that. As yeah. well. Family and friends have always been like, we love cruises because of that very reason. You don't have to unpack. You don't have to worry about your stuff, more or less. There's food always there. It's a more or less like a banquet kind of style. Mm. So you're not stuck with like food that you don't like. Yeah, I mean, my, I, I'm holding out hope of getting on a Cunard Queen Mary 2 ship. Um, mm. So it is super formal. So the informal nights are still mandatory suits oh, um, wow. and the formal nights are bow tie tuxedos, right? Uh, and it's got the classic 1940s decor. It's all very old British style, lots of classical music and everything, a much older kind of clientele. So, you know, I'd probably be one of the younger people there. But just being on, like, such a classic voyage, uh, would be just such a great thing. So I, I, these are just the fantasies I'm living in at the moment. Yeah. None of it is real. None so of it's like good. a Titanic style. Well, hopefully, yes, Titanic style, not Titanic result. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, well, it's the, the Queen Mary 2, I think, is the only truly um, true ocean liner. So there's a lot mm. of cruise ships that go around, you know, sort of soft waters and stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, the Queen Mary 2 is built to go from across the Atlantic from London to New York. Yeah. I don't think I'd be doing the, the transatlantic. I'd do something much smaller than that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, just the thought of getting on a cruise and seeing some place I'm just so outside like, of oh. my living area. Like, that would be so good. I mean, Australia's a beautiful yeah. place, but I, I definitely need to travel. Yeah, I do want to travel, but I just can't stand cruise ships or anything to do with boats. Like, I'm a land animal. Like, I I just get straight to – I get really seasick. And even if I try those, like, anti-seasick pills or whatever, like, I just get really tired and I feel worse. Yeah, so see, just... I, I'm with you. I can get seasick, but <sighs> – all of the YouTube videos and stuff I've seen on it, like from people that are just like, I get so seasick, et cetera, et cetera. They're like, no, no, these cruise ships, that doesn't happen. They've just got perfect stabilizers. You okay. never know you're on a ship. Uh, it yeah. always feels perfectly level. You, you, it's like being on land. And I don't know if that's true, but that is what the reviews <laughs> say. So I'm willing to take a risk yeah. um, and, and see. But th- these are all just the... I mean, we're all living in the future now, aren't we? We're just trying to dream of it. I know, yeah, for sure, for sure. And it's way busier, like, for, I guess, states who are, like, have 
some restrictions, but like are able to go out more. Like people are going out. They're mm. making the most of it because <laughs> they know that tomorrow could change. <laughs> so yes. it's living within the moment. And I think, yeah, it's a big cultural shift, right? Like I used to be like such a homebody, like, oh, I can't wait to go home and go watch movies and not see anyone. <laughs> but now I have to be like, no, I don't have this freedom if, if something changes, happens. Um, yeah. Speaking of freedom, I mean, it, that Australia, I've, I've seen a lot of international news coverage of Australia. Mm. And why are they talking about us? Oh, it, they're, they're looking at us like a, like we're a prison colony again. And that, that's the, the phrase that they're using. So during 2020, media outlets across the board were praising Australia and New Zealand for successfully suppressing the disease and now low mm. numbers of you know contagions and deaths and so forth. And now as they've all got vaccinated and are opening up and getting back to normal and just accepting that the disease is part of their of their world now, mm. um, Australia is seen in completely different terms of, mm. of just being unable to live a normal life mm. uh, in part because of a terrible vaccine rollout, but also just our extremely draconian measures by which people have been unable to participate in, in civil society. Do you think the relationship between the Australian Australian people and the government is unhealthy? Oh, yes. It has it was become that way. So I used to think it was a net positive our relationship mm. with government. Uh the big difference between like there are various differences between Americans and Australians. Mm. One of the big differences is that we have different attitudes to government. So the United States took up arms to overthrow a government and then put in very strict checks and balances, separated the legislature and the executive, uh, made a very strong court system to prevent the resurgence of of a government trampling people's rights, that a government should be there to serve the people, not rule the people. Mm. Uh, And Australians have had a much greater trusting relationship with its politicians. You go to like the the Simpsons episode of Australia where the politicians are basically like everyone else hanging around the barbecue. Like nobody could tell who the politician is, okay? (laughs) Uh, And that was, I thought, good. It was part of our egalitarian society where you could kind of trust the politician to a degree Mm. uh, on the basis that they at least had your same values and concerns even Mm. if they were you know they could be corrupt and everything else but at least they understood they they understood what you were going through right yeah yeah uh and now it has i think power has gone to the heads of a lot of these politicians who have been rewarded um tragically rewarded for exerting a high degree of tyranny uh and i and I was reading the comments on our Australia video, and one of the the comments was about how, uh, look, you know, for example, in Western Australia, the Premier Mark McGowan is is universally admired because he's managed to, at the time of this recording, keep the Delta variant out of the state, and people live in relative freedom, and and he's just slammed up a hard border. Uh, I want to say in that video, I wasn't attacking any Premier. What I was saying was that it is unhealthy the separation and relationship we have both between us and the politicians themselves and the politicians with one another. Uh, so the states, you mean? So like West Australians to Queenslanders to Tasmanians to New exactly. South Wales and I don't, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. We've lost the we're all in it together. So 
At the beginning, there was the national cabinet that was formed, where mm-hmm. the prime minister and all the state premiers would get together and they would agree on a shared policy. Uh, and that was really good. It was it was a great unity. And then, mm-hmm. let's say there was an outbreak in Melbourne, uh, we our hearts would go out to them. Because and they'd they deploy. Would... And... Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, the response in terms of like the COVID outbreaks like in certain states and then the response from other states when a fire happens or mm. another crisis happens. Like there's all this like compassion and, you know, we're here for you, mate. Like if you need anything, donations happen. Like, like we take action between states to, you know, help like Queensland with flooding, for instance, um, that always seems to happen. Um, and yet with COVID, we don't get that. We get like... Like there was that Simpsons babe of like everyone looking at that state and being like, "Are you serious?" Like, and it's kind of like try the meme of like replacing whichever state is doing the most poor and replace it with Tasmania <laughs> because they're absolutely it's such a different mindset. Yeah, and the, and the comment I refer to is by by John Matsakis, and he said, "Look, you know, Western Australia and the Eastern states have always been separate." I'm like, yes. But it's always been with the degree of tongue-in-cheek. There's been a lot of banter. Mm. Uh, but other than perhaps some complaints about, you know, GST tax distribution or something like that, mm. uh, there wasn't real any animosity at all. They were mm. all Australians and, yes, they would make jokes about how bad the weather is in Melbourne but relative to Perth and so on. But otherwise it was just we're Aussies, right? Mm. Uh, but now people in Perth treat people from New South Wales as a mortal threat, right? Mm. Um, and that is a different characterization of our culture, right? Like it's it's a I, I think of of one of the great stories of Australia, which was uh, in their various camps in World War II, POW camps. Uh, you had British prisoners, you had American prisoners, you had Australian prisoners. Mm-hmm. And one of the weird things that was researched for decades afterwards was that Australian prisoner survival rates were obscenely higher than everybody else. That that uh, if you were captured in a Japanese POW camp, your chance of survival was five or six times higher. Mm. And the reason for that is because Australia, like people assume that once you're in extreme situations, uh, norms of society would break down and, and you, everyone would basically revert to their natural you know, survival instinct. Mm. Well, that wasn't true. Um, Australians managed to keep these little welfare states going, even in the most extreme circumstances where uh, you know, people would give up a little bit of their rations if they were in good health and people who were sick were, you know, other people would take care of their work and get, they would get extra food and be nursed back to health. And people took care of each other in these extreme situations. And there's a lot of great stories. You know, Weary Dunlop is a great famous Australian iconic hero who, you know, g- gave people jobs. Like there was this one blind guy who was like, I, I need something to do. Otherwise, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be able to be fed. And he's like, well, you can cut hair. And he's like, I'm blind. And he's like, well, they just put this this... A uh, bowl on the head and cut around the size, and, and That's so this how is how I got. Cut when I was younger. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is um, it, it was it, it's it's this kind of narrative that Australia yeah. has, uh, and and sorry about the alarms. Uh, is this kind of narrative that Australia has prided itself on as a great national mm. story, and but what- I still see pockets of it in my own local community, like on like mm. Facebook groups and that, like people are like, oh, I saw somebody that looked like they were hungry. So they went out, went to the shops, went to go buy a chook or whatever, and then come back and help them out. 
and there's oh, so that same person also helped blah blah blah. Like I think there are pockets within the community, but I think as a whole, I don't know if that message is broadcasted. Yes, I mean, and we should look. We definitely shouldn't shouldn't neglect those small acts of of compassion and support. But yes, at a local level, our national story is what's suffering here, mm. uh, and I, I, I'm very despondent about that state of affairs. I would much rather us all get the pandemic, all of us, than to lose who we are. Like that's just that. That's my own values. Perhaps people have different view. Uh, but if that's the if that's the cost, if, if we're going to view each other as potential plague bearers, um, mm. and you know, if if we blame victims all the time, I, the, the the media narrative on the lockdown protests has been extreme. Now, people have said, look, you know, these people are out there spreading the disease. You know, other people are doing the right thing, etc. And I'm not here to to take sides in this at all i can mm. see the arguments the people of goodwill can take different positions okay mm. but the the universal wall-to-wall coverage has been that these protesters are all selfish you know they're just out to ruin it for everybody else they don't care about grandma uh and that cannot be true like the the impact of the lockdowns have has not been the same for different people and, and the point of that video was to say initially there was a lot of support for casual workers displaced people's unemployed and yeah. so forth as well as people that got paychecks because they worked for government or they were in secure employment mm. uh, but since those those government initiatives have ceased but those lockdown restrictions have remained and even probably harsher. it is necessary oh much harsher it is by necessity impacting people to different degrees and i find it really chafing when you've got like an abc journalist who's you know paid by government and the taxpayer when you've got you know government employees and and outlets condemning people who are starving for looking for work right like it just it, it i find that really distasteful it's something that we should like if, if these protests are happening the question we should be asking is why are they happening and how do we alleviate the suffering of those mm. people so they don't need to protest? Now, there are different ways to do that. It could be that we realise that the lockdowns aren't working and we have to change policy. That's one possible outcome. The other possible outcome is, okay, these people are protesting because their kids are you know, are cutting themselves because they're not seeing anyone, right? Mm. What can we do to socialise? And I saw a story, a tragic story yesterday in Geelong, Victoria. So uh, rural Victorian area, mm. probably no COVID at all, right? Uh, rural Victorian area, but in lockdown because Melbourne is in lockdown, which means the state is in lockdown and Victoria is a massive area. Uh, been in lockdown for most of last year, most of this year, uh, and another nine-year-old committed suicide. Uh, I mean, you can't yeah. do this forever, right? Yeah. Uh, and and yet we have managed to vilify these people, to vilify the victims in a way that oh, I just can't believe. And, and people get viruses. You know, we, we we did so much good work during the eighties and nineties to de destigmatize various diseases like the HIV yeah you know thing where where for a while everyone thought oh it's the it's the gay disease and you know it's it's only degenerates and prostitutes that get it and you know, like we did a lot of work as a community to get over that kind of stuff 
uh, and, and with the pandemic, we've gone backwards. It's like yeah. if you get it, you've done something wrong. Um, yeah. And that's not that's not okay. The other thing about it is is the speed of lockdowns, and this is more a political discussion where. Uh, again, in that comment, and I'm, I'm picking a lot out of that one comment, but okay. I think it, it speaks to the issue uh, where they're like, oh, if, if Gladys Berlajiklian, New South Wales Premier, had locked down immediately, you know, like the great Mark McGowan has, um, we, that New South Wales wouldn't be in that position. Well, that's that's an interesting theory, except New Zealand got one Delta case, locked down the entire country immediately, for exactly the same reason, they said, oh, "Look what happened in New South Wales," and their numbers keep rising. <laughs> yeah, it spiraled out of control. So the lockdown so far hasn't curtailed the yeah. infections, and I would argue that in Western Australia's case, yes, uh, one or two occasions the lockdowns worked well, but on another couple of occasions, I think it was just a boy who cried wolf situation. You know, someone with a past infection or someone who actually didn't interact with anybody else. The whole city went into lockdown. No one else got infected and then the thing came out a lockdown you could argue that if you just isolated that one person you wouldn't have had the issue in the first place now i'm not criticizing the wa government for being cautious uh but it it's not as clear cut as mm. right wrong they were all in situation where these politicians haven't been in this situation before yeah uh, anyone's equipped with this <laughs> yeah dealing with variants that that uh you know, are unusual in their infectious rates and mm. trying to balance the, the harm caused mm. by lockdowns, which is significant, not significant for people with guaranteed employment by the taxpayer, but significant yeah. for ordinary people, um, and uh, and also the health and well-being of the society who needs to be protected from the disease. This is a, this is a balancing act, yeah. and, and there is Such no a right or wrong. problem. <laughs> yeah. Absolute wicked problem. Yeah. And I definitely think what could help the situation is be able to just show more compassion, putting yourself, removing yourself from the situation and being like, okay, who are these people? And having an open mind, you know, is it people on casual wages that don't have, can't work from home, firstly, you know, are quote unquote essential worker, but they're non-essential in terms of just the field of work they are, or are they living in rural remote communities that they can't call up uber eats to be like can i have food because it's 300 kilometers away from the nearest shopping center like mm. there are all these situations that again it's, it's definitely uneven ground um and it is frustrating um to some extent because i'm just like oh like because it's almost like i feel kind of helpless in a way because there's all these different forces around me and i guess the relationship with the government is just like ah <laughs> it is yeah. a juggling act and i like to think that people who are working in this space to, you know, vaccinate the community and try to, quote-unquote, get back to normal are doing it with the best intention, the best evidence, I'm sure, right? Like, they have good intentions. Or am I just being too idealistic? Uh, no, I think okay. no, no one thinks of themselves as the villain, okay? Okay. Uh, I do have some concerns about Daniel Andrews, the Victorian Premier. He, he does seem a little bit carried away. I mean, remember uh, the state of emergency in Australia, there is the emergency management protocols and the public health protocols. Uh, the, the legislation varies throughout the country, but essentially it 
allows the government to take total control over every aspect of a person's life to deal with an acute emergency. So if there's a pandemic and you need to lock everyone inside and bolt mm-hmm. it shut, uh, the government has the power to do that. They don't normally have the power to do that, but in a state of emergency, they do. Now, most of these have to be renewed like every two weeks. Okay, so, mm. these, so when the legislation was drafted, it was like, okay, there's a bushfire raging through this community and we need to get everybody evacuated. And so we don't have time to argue about someone's individual right to stay in a burning house. We just take them and, and they go, yeah. right? That, 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 there's something that the community can kind of understand, right? Yeah. But that's an acute temporary crisis. Yeah. And when the crisis is over, there's a review done to say, okay, was all the actions taken in that exceptional period justified given the, the risk to life and property that the crisis entailed? Mm. Well, when you've got these powers rolling on permanently, just rolling over almost automatically without even parliament voting on it, uh, then it's going to be very hard to track over two years of history, you know, was all the things reasonable right appropriate scale because i would like Um, to know the assessment of cost right what is the cost of lockdown besides obviously spread of the disease but like you know okay at this stage like we australia actually has quite low numbers and we're very fortunate in that in respect to different countries Mm. right even within new south wales it's like 0.02 percent of the population actually has got covid Mm. 0.02 percent because they have millions of people there Mm. so yeah, what is the cost of all these different lockdowns to, like, you know, on the education, on the mental health, on their actual just general health, aside from getting on um, the COVID disease, like, just social well-being? I don't know. I'm just like, it's like health. Like, my brain just goes there. But there's all these different costs. I don't know that are assessed when these reviews happen. Because mm. is there, there a review? Like, Well, we, we're, not, we're not at the stage of review yet because we're still in these rolling... Oh, okay. emergency laws uh and so the politicians have gotten used to it i mean right. they, they, like once you've been once you've got dictatorial power over a two-year period very hard to give that up i mean really only one person in world history probably handled that well and that was marcus aurelius the emperor of rome who had absolute power and managed to contain himself for mm. all of his life uh, from doing anything disgraceful. Well, I, I just don't think that that people like Daniel Andrews are of his caliber. Right? I just I don't think most people are equipped to have such power, particularly over a long period of time, without being corrupted. Absolutely, like you know the great Lord Acton quote. So uh, I, I'm concerned about that. I'm okay. concerned about you know politicians who start out with the best of intentions. Mm. who start to see the preservation of their own power and influence as being synonymous with the public good, um, Mm. making it, therefore, any threat to their own power and influence a threat to the country, uh, that's a real risk. Um, And I I think that the fact that these politicians were initially rewarded handsomely in the electorates, uh, like, you know, the the popular support and so on was very high Mm. because because of the fact that the disease was kept low. Mm. They've got a kind of a natural inclination that only they have the the great wisdom uh, and if they have to be strong in crushing the society um, to prevent the spread of the disease, then they'll do it. Mm. Uh, But I I think as time goes on and the costs mount, Mm. um, then 
there's got to be a point where that that seesaw starts to move. And uh, I think the next federal election is going to be very interesting in Australia because Scott Morrison, the prime minister, his had a kind of a bad pandemic. I mean, he was already heavily criticised. There was massive bushfire that hit us just before the, the pandemic, like historical yeah. proportions, worldwide coverage. Well, he was in Hawaii. With yeah, I was like, he's in Hawaii. Yeah. I mean. And his quote was, I don't hold a, whole, hold a hose, mate. Right? It was kind of like, a, it's not my job. <laughs> like, you're the leader of the country. Like, there was a lot of, he, he got a lot of flack for that. And then he was very slow to move on the pandemic. Yeah, he, he recovered some of that currency with the job keeper and the and the um, job seeker like, yes. increased support. Like it did look like he had gained control, created a national cabinet, had kind of a yeah. good response. But now he's back in the situation where he's fighting with the various premiers in the states. Yeah. So especially with the vaccine rollout, like I that's what frustrated me the most, and it's still frustrating today. Is just the change in messaging with vaccines of like mm. certain vaccines and favoring one and another. I know like research changes over time. We're still learning about, still developing. But like you said, we already had evidence globally of the risk for um, AZ, mm-hmm. uh, and yet we still continued and charged away. And then suddenly we lost trust within the leadership within Australia. And then we just had different rules wherever you were, depending where you lived. Yes. <laughs> and it was just like, no. <laughs> like, yes. And then it, and then public confidence was undermined. So when what happened was older people obviously have a much greater risk of the disease. And if you can get a vaccine that's effective and, and so on, you just get it, right? Um but when they started recommending that young people didn't receive the particular vaccine, yeah. older people were asking, well, what's wrong with it then? Uh, yeah. And, and, and people were, so they really undermined the confidence and the messaging has a lot to do with that. Um, so the vaccine rollout is a disaster. The supply problem was a disaster. The negotiation with the pharmaceutical companies was a terrible, you know, failing. So there's a lot of problems there. Um, so the Prime Minister and, and, and the vaccine rollout is a, is a Commonwealth, ultimately a Commonwealth responsibility because the Therapeutic Goods Administration, drug yeah. approvals, procurement yeah. of international drug sources, that's all Commonwealth, right? Yeah, so, and they do like do relationships. I don't know how like arrangements with like Britain and everything like that. Is that how it works? Yeah. And then they well, they, they, they've had to do it that way as well. So okay. initially the negotiations with the drug companies themselves uh, and then they've been buying up um surplus supplies from other countries like Poland, for example. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, so the, but that's ramping up. Like in the last month or two, there's been huge numbers of vaccinations. Yeah. So that's good. Um, we are getting back on track. Mm. Uh, the uh, But then the next election is going to be about opening up versus um, staying as we are. Uh, and I think it's going to be a really interesting campaign. So for the first time in a long time, we're going to have a real ideological political fight where I think, and I could be proven wrong about this, but I think what Scott Morrison will do, Prime Minister, will campaign on vote for for us, the Conservatives, and you will have your freedom back, right? Uh, And the state premiers, the Labor Party will be like, you know, the government has screwed up everything, so they'll run on that. Yeah, of course. But they'll also say... Uh, you know, we will protect you from the disease. So it'll be a safety versus, like a security versus liberty debate. Um, And I think that I hope, I mean, you know, without without sort of saying I hope who wins or who loses, I hope that the argument that's future oriented Mm -hmm. wins out, Mm i.e., 
um, we will get the vaccinations done and we will open up, right? That, that we're going to mm. get back to normal. We're going to get back to business, back to travel, back to everyday life. Mm. Um, there was also a Qantas ad. The Qantas ad has a positive message of like people getting vaccinated and then being free and being able to, to mm. go around the world. And a lot of people felt really warm and fuzzy when they saw that ad. Like, you know, I've seen a lot of old men uh, who are otherwise pretty unemotional uh, get quite emotional when they sort of saw the prospect of that time long ago when they actually could go and see people and do things and live their lives. Mm. Uh, and that message, I have to say, is stark contrast with the government shock videos that they'd be sending out, you know, of people dying if you don't get vaccinated and so forth. So uh, this is a much more effective update. Oh, message. absolutely. I, get, I mm. was like... I remember that time. <laughs> I remember when I got excited to go see my family, you know, mm. um, and you just like pack your bags and you're like, I can't wait to see. Like they had all of those like beats in the ad. It was so good, you know, and doesn't need to, yeah, be gruesome or anything like that. Um, and it's also really good to have such a positive messaging, a positive outlook, because ultimately we will be over this pandemic one day. So there's, and it's good to look forward into the future, um, more or less, because I don't know, I feel like with all these restrictions, you just feel so like defeated <laughs> all the time. Well, that's another comment that was on the, on the video. Um, well, I think it was Fitz, um, where it was, he was speaking to his wife and he's like, look, when, mm. when this is all over, you know, do you think, um, things will get back to normal? And his wife's like, do you think it's ever going to be over? Um, like yeah. hopefully it will be and uh, and that Australia will come out of this the other side without not only with a, as a country that's positive but also with its reputation sort mm. of recovered and intact. Yeah, for um, sure. I'm going to segue, mm -hmm. right? We talked about Australia's politics and the federal election coming up. Mm -hmm. Now, this week you also talked about conservative and progressives. Yeah. I want to know, this is, it boggles my mind in terms of, Progressive, like, how do you define progressive, you know? Because I think to myself, okay, if you achieve, say, universal education, mm -hmm. you can still progress education. Like, there's still ways of making it better and more, you know. Just yeah, so progressive messaging does two things. On the one hand, it advocates for a change. Right? That is a, an absolutely mandatory yeah. requirement. Right? Yeah, but the degree of change is... Yeah, the yeah. other the other form of messaging, which is the attack messaging, is the claim that the other side, the conservatives, will roll back changes that have been made. So, if let's say you get universal health care, uh, what every single left wing uh, party across the world does when there is universal health care is claim that at the next election. Uh, the conservatives are going to defund healthcare, right, and force everyone onto private cover or get their own mm. insurance or whatever. Uh, and that look, that claim may or not be true, but it does get tied, particularly if the conservatives continue to put money into public healthcare. Uh, and and that's that's one argument. The other argument is, is as you say, is okay. Well, you achieve universal healthcare, but perhaps dental isn't available. Or perhaps you know, cycle mental health is underfunded. Yeah. And so they'll argue for those things. Yeah. Uh, and that's all well and good, uh, provided it's something that stands to benefit a large number of people. Right. Uh, and what you're, you're like, this also dovetails with the relationship with government. I mean, in the United States, 
they a lot of people just want the government to do as little as possible. Mm-hmm. Just stay away from them, do nothing, right? If right. the government provides no services, takes no taxes, then that's ideal. You know, the government can protect the country. That's it, right? Oh, really? That's some. That, that's some. Some people believe oh. that, right? You know, they're like, okay, have a military, and that's it. Yeah, wow. we, don't, we don't want you to do anything else. Uh, so law and order. Also, well, no, even even law and order should be funded locally, right? Like they'll be like, oh, look, we'll get our community together, and through our charities and through our local council and the people that we deal with, oh. we will organise all of the services. The federal government should do federal stuff, <laughs> stay out of our lives, right? Interesting. Uh, and that that's a a very American view. Yeah. In Australia, that's not the case. We we we're happy to pay taxes and receive services, right? Mm. And those services are what people are judged on, okay? So the the conservative parties will always say, look, you know, vote for us, we'll lower your taxes. And that works if the government is perceived as spending the money really badly, right? So if if the electorate, if the Australian people, for example, see a lot of waste, a lot of mismanagement, um, mm. have a crisis of confidence in government, and that, that will benefit the conservatives because conservatives say, look, vote for us and we'll do nothing. We'll just blow your taxes. Um, and that that works for some people, but it's also aligns with conservative philosophy, right? Mm. Um, you know, individual choice, not taking people's money away. Yeah, sort of let stuff. businesses thrive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the the Australian electorate, and I think it's true for Britain as well, and probably Canada, reward uh, reward politicians who deliver policies effectively. So if you introduce a universal healthcare system mm-hmm. and everybody likes it and it perceives to be work, you will be rewarded for that effort. Mm. Uh, but you'll only be rewarded for it briefly because it's the what have you done for me lately kind of argument, right? Mm. You get to the next election, you've got people with new ideas and new things that they intend to implement. Yeah. Uh, and unless you can convince the electorate that there's this whole new progressive change that needs to happen in order to either embed the success that's already been realised or mm-hmm. build on future success, yeah. uh, then you can, you're going to be voted out because the, the people just don't have an interest in that. Right. Uh, so some people have interests in maintaining the status quo if things are good. That could... <laughs> like that's an argument in itself, I guess. Yeah, and I think also there is one political scientist who I'll give a shout out to, Professor Matt Goodwin, uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, he was the the, I think he nailed the the twenty twenty U.S. election. Uh, I thought really well, uh, and he's captured the zeitgeist in a, in a good way as to what the the axiom of politics now is. So, for example, uh, you can be left-leaning, left-wing, progressive mm-hmm. on economics and right-leaning on culture. Mm-hmm. And, and this is uh, the winning formula in British politics and, and certainly Australian politics as well. And, and I think in terms of political parties, what that means is the progressive parties can be progressive on policy which is like service delivery it's it's fine for a progressive party to say look we want to increase the marginal tax rate for this we want to get rid of um you know negative gearing for property investment that mm-hmm. sort of stuff and and people will either support or, or disagree with it but large numbers of people will be interested okay mm-hmm. whereas if you're saying we are going to run on trans rights well we're dealing with a very small minority of people to begin with the mm-hmm. issue is highly controversial uh, and 
often impedes other rights. Like where does that flow into to sports, for example, or, mm. or prisons? You know, um, these these are issues that that haven't been resolved, and so culturally, mm-hmm. people are on the right. They're like, no, I think you know women should be in women's prisons or or women should be in women's sport. Uh, and most people kind of feel that way, and therefore most people will support that view. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but there'll be like economically, yes, there are people being left behind. Yes, uh, there is a massive intergenerational wealth gap. Mm-hmm. It is very difficult for young people to get on the housing market. People are in more insecure employment. Uh, jobs are being shipped overseas. So progressive yeah. politics would have a lot more currency if it focused entirely on those issues. The problem is, is that they, the, the, the adults aren't in the room anymore. These people are not in charge of the party because those achievements have already been done and those that were working for those achievements have moved out of the trade union movement because yeah. once upon a time they were all unionised, so they would represent union interests and therefore we were like, we want, you know, a sort of 40-hour work week, we want eight-hour days, we want you yeah. know, paid annual leave, we want long-service leave, we want... Yeah. sick leave etc yeah um and or so superannuation which they actually are raising now <laughs> which, yeah yeah retirement tax. retirement savings yeah, yeah. Th- savings. think of your 401k as americans yeah uh the so all of that stuff mm. was was had a lot of currency in the 80s but once mm. you no longer have a unionized workforce once everybody's working for themselves uh, people don't see themselves as sort of workers anymore they see themselves in different they categorize themselves differently. Yeah. Uh, I'm not defined by jobs anymore. Like, I feel like my parents' time, grandparents' time, they used to stay to like two jobs, maybe. Mm. Now, like, I'm quite young. I've already had like seven jobs, eight jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking, you know, yeah. and I don't have enough time to be in one job to join a union. Yeah. It's so everything's casual, short term contracts. Like, there's no protection for the individual. Like, how am I meant to? That's that's completely right. That yes, that's that that is the the world that we now live in, and there isn't anyone really representing that from an economic point of view. Mm, interesting. Um, so that really leaves it to play out in the cultural space, and uh, uh, and the conservatives are winning that cultural space because they're where the vast majority of people are, uh, and that's why can't you have both like that sounds lovely to have you know progressive policies and then conservative like culture being proud of where you're from like being a proud australian and then like doesn't that sound like great yeah but but here's the thing this is why no you've nailed it so here's here's why conservatives are winning because it's easier to move on economics than it is on culture right if you are from a political organization mm. that has a certain philosophy, right, where you can say, yeah, look, we believe in low taxes, but we also believe in infrastructure spending, let's say. And the average person might be like, hey, isn't that government spending? We're not really into that as a, as a conservative party. But you know what? I don't really care. Like, it's going to win us votes and I do want a new library or whatever. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a different, you know, people can be persuaded on those things. Yeah. Whereas to say, you know what? Uh, I think that the family unit is no longer something we should support. That's a harder argument for the ordinary person, okay? Mm. Like, and so... The, the the things that people have an emotional attachment to, things that they care about, mm. um, it, it, much more difficult to change than, than just, 
oh, look, um, yeah, this speed limit didn't work. We're having too many road accidents, so we're going to lower it. Yes, it's a bit annoying for people, but everyone's going to be safer. Yeah, uh, it's a lot easier to digest than... It's a change. Once it happens, people accept it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, it's, it's one of those things where people can, can ask forgiveness rather than permission, mm. whereas cultural change is much more... Uh, visceral and particularly when you're attacking the cultural narrative of your nation state um, there is a there's a weird psychosis is only true in the anglosphere uh, where here we have societies that have done more than any other to improve the well-being the the tolerance the religious acceptance the diversity of opinion and views than any other society in the history of the world and yet goes more out of its way to denigrate its own achievements. Mm. Uh, like you don't see people pulling down statues <clears throat> in Mongolia, okay, um, even though the statues they have are of Genghis Khan and the statues that we have are of Winston Churchill, okay? Like it's just, <laughs> we're, we're, it's really bizarre. It is bizarre. Um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so we, the, the, the progressive parties are in a massive crisis. And then we had like... I wonder um, where it's going to go then if they are in a crisis. Like, where do these people go? Do they just kind of go down the social, cultural progressiveness? If, yeah. I, I think they're pinning their helps, hopes on demographic change. Okay. I think I think they're hoping that with immigration, with changes to like... So, for example, um, let's say you've got... 70% of the country that really believes in the glory of Britain and, and the, the wonders of its history in the mm -hmm. British Empire. Well, if you bring in a lot of people that aren't British uh, who don't like that history, that see it as colonialism or whatever else, mm -hmm. then you do increase the vote for the left-wing parties. Um, so that's the main reason why immigration is so favoured by left-wing parties is because uh, they tend to vote left-leaning unless they happen to be asian immigrants or they happen to be uh, cuban immigrants mm. um, so for the united states um, asians tend to have a very conservative view of you know work hard get education do good job like lots of strong work ethic that sort of thing yeah that sounds like my parents uh, all <laughs> wrapped up <laughs> yeah they they i mean they so they vote conservative. They're like, yeah. okay. Also, they kind of do believe in like, the Australian, the American dream. Like that is mm. actually in the, within the culture. If you work hard, you can achieve the quote-unquote dream. Well, yeah, it's not for nothing. You get like a 12-year-old who couldn't speak English come to, to America two years later, win the spelling bee. I mean, True. <laughs> it's like that takes a lot of work, yeah. you know. Um, so there, there is a, a very much self-help. Yeah. Um, perspective mm. and i'm thinking of uh some funny asian comedians who talk about that uh <laughs> which we'll, we'll watch after this okay um but then there are um uh the cubans mm -hmm. those or eastern europeans anyone who's lived under communism right so obviously the baltic states um they're very conservative uh, those that have lived in Cuba, who live in Florida now, they vote conservative. Mm -hmm. So the Democrats in America don't really want Cuban immigrants; <laughs> they want they want Mexican immigrants, um, and uh, and so on. So it it, it it can run both ways, but but most immigration 
supports the left-leaning parties because the left-leaning parties support immigration. Mm -hmm. Um, Interesting. It'll be interesting how it plays out in a COVID era where, you know, do we open up or do we not open up? (laughs) Because that's immigration. (laughs) Yeah, although, I mean, it's a different... Like, it's a different form of opening up, of course. Like, I think um, Australians intuitively know that having a lot of foreign students is a good thing. Mm. Uh, for example... Yeah, our uh, universities are kind of crying at the moment. Yeah, I mean, tertiary education was Australia's third largest export after minerals and food. Mm. Uh, that's a huge sector of the economy that's just completely ruined by the fact that we don't have any arrivals. Mm. Uh, they... And just, you know, the fact that we're all intrepid and need to travel. Uh, so it, it will be very interesting how it plays out at the next federal election, but a lot more will play into it than just that ideology, of course, as yeah. competence will be a factor. Um, mm. But, yeah, I don't, I don't see the social... Like, the social progressive parties need to have a new philosophy, a new raison d'etre. Previously, they could, they could uh, corral around the trade union movement, right, mm. even if... They had their different offshoots. Um, they had that workers' base. And then the, the workers don't exist now. They, they, they're in different forms of employment. Mm-hmm. So they need to have a different base, whereas the conservatives still have a base. They have religious base. They have libertarian base. Mm-hmm. They have a business base. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they've got that core base of support. So the bottom can fall out of the left-wing parties, but the bottom can't fall out of the right-wing parties. So there'll be a minimum number of voters Mm. that always vote conservative no matter what. Uh, And the minimum number that always vote left-leaning is getting less and less over Mm. time. Interesting. Mm. Great. You also talked about Lithuania and the fact that China is now going heavy-handed into this tiny country that they don't really have ties with, per se. But Lithuania is actually trying to set some example to Mm. the world of what can happen if you um, speak out against China and support Taiwan. But Lithuania are like, -uh." (laughs) nah, and not standing down to it. Like, there's just so much courage there, I guess. Like, This is is a perfect example of the Streisand effect where – you do something in reaction to something that someone's done. Yeah. And by doing it, you bring everyone's attention to it. Okay. So it's like, oh, it's outrageous that this person has shared this thing on social media and then everybody else shares it because they think it's funny, right? They, yeah. They, they would like never just, have seen it otherwise. Because it's such a small country, right? Like it just seems so like from my it, 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 pathetic. Like China is so big that there's other problems that they could be dealing with, but they choose this small Baltic country that, you know, wants to stick by their values and support the US. Like it just seems really pathetic. Yeah. And, and uh, by the way, a big shout out to Dana or Dana Moon. Let me know how to pronounce that, uh, who asked initially for us to do a video on oh, the, yes. the Lithuania Taiwan thing. It was the, where it was first brought to my attention. Uh, but yes, it makes China look really small. You look as small, like you, you, one of the great lessons of life, and this is a lesson for ordinary people as well as countries, mm. is you can really judge someone by the quality of their enemies, okay? Mm. If you go after people that are bigger, more powerful, stronger than you, that makes you brave, right? Lithuania, very brave, right? Yes. Uh, China, very small, right? Like... <laughs> And this is something that the Chinese are going to learn at their great cost. If you if you start looking like a bully and you're willing to go out of your way to hurt tiny countries, then 
other countries are going to think about a world in which you're the most powerful nation and determine whether or not they are willing to support and facilitate that rise or whether they'll actively resist you. One of the things Mm. that the United States did successfully was universalize their rights. So after the Second World War, you had the United Nations formed, you had the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. These were all American ideas uh, in which it said, look, no matter how you know small you are, you have certain inalienable rights. And the United States at that time had you know a third of the world's GDP mm. uh, and could have decimated anyone it wanted to, but chose not to because it was a restrained power. Mm. Uh, Now, of course, it failed along the way in various respects, and people can point to the exceptions. But as Bill Clinton once said, uh, and Bill Clinton was the president at the height of American power, that was like the great zenith, Mm. uh, he said, look, we we can focus on extending our power as long as possible, or we can set up a world that we can live in when we're no longer the most powerful. And Mm. what China is doing through this case of Lithuania is saying we're going to be the most powerful and this is how we're going to behave as the most powerful country. We're going to use our power in a maximalist way. Coerce. And and not only coerce, but when when we don't have leverage, Mm. like they like, you know, they'll punish Australia directly. They put, you know, ban on our our barley, they'll put ban on our wine. They they would get rid of our coal if we if they could. Although fun fact with the wine. So I went on a little wine tour Mm -hmm. and speaking to local growers, local wineries, they're saying that even though they don't get as many um exports to China um as much anymore. A lot of locals are buying the wine now. <laughs> There's more stock for the locals. So like their business actually hasn't changed as much as they thought it would. Yes. And also there was a you know, a temporary wave of people internationally buying up Australian wines mm. sort of patriotically in support of, of our wine producers. And this is what happens to China. Like if you start punishing people for things that they don't like. Mm. For example, you know, Australia just called for an international inquiry in the origins of the pandemic, you know, the disease that wiped out, you know, our entire international system. Uh, Well, people are going to start judging you and reacting to you accordingly. And if you go after a country like Lithuania, then people will start supporting, not only will they support Lithuania, but they'll they'll go out of their way to form coalitions to to curtail your interests, mm. and they won't allow themselves to be so dependent on you in the first place. Particularly those Western European countries that are thinking about their future with China, mm. that you could do the same to them. Yeah. Uh, and what makes it even more complicated, and, and something I will explore in a more detailed future video as well as some writings, is China's attempt to manipulate Russia to punish Lithuania. This is a really interesting angle. Why is it interesting? Because Russia doesn't... Okay, does Russia care whether Lithuania opens a a representation in Taiwan or not? (laughs) No. Russia has zero interest in it. So, But Russia does have an interest in maintaining trade relations with Lithuania. Yes, they have political issues, but, you know, Russia imports a lot of Lithuanian dairy products, Lithuania imports a lot of Russian gas and things. Mm -hmm. There there is is a... um, uh, like a trade relationship there, and there is an interest in improving relations over time, even if they're kind of cold and toxic now. Uh, Russia doesn't need to pick this fight with Lithuania over yeah. something it has no interest in and doesn't give a damn about. He's like, well, I want. Well, I want. Yeah, that. the only reason they would be punishing Lithuania 
would be China's request. Mm. And this is really fascinating. This goes to the to the nature of Russia's relationship with China. Does Russia want to be the junior partner in this coalition where it increasingly over time looks like a dependent and a client state? If it starts part like because what it means is harming Russia's own interests, mm-hmm. i.e. trade relations with Lithuania, relations with the EU, yeah. um, for the sake of China's interest, subordinating its own interest for a foreign power. And that is a massive psychological shift it's one thing to work on shared interests so you know you you vote the same way in the united nations because you both believe the same thing Mm -hmm. or cooperate because you don't like you know america's hegemony in the world you want to create a more multipolar is that what that makes sense is that well they're they're, not us is that that's that's the main thing i mean ultimately it's it's they, they don't want the us to be the number one power uh they think that the us is threat to both of their aspirations and security and so forth, and that pushes them closer together. And America has been hostile to Russia and and to China. Yeah. Uh, So there is, and they obviously have different political systems. So they might stretch it then because Lithuania is building greater relationships with the US as it always is. So they might try to stretch that further and be like, oh, but it's linking to US. Like, can well, that be? This is, this is a whole new video that I'll do. No, no, it's a good, it's a good point. Because there's been work done, and I'll give a, I'll give a sneak peek, but this I'll, I'll make this video next week, where after Second World War, the American military doctrine was mm-hmm. to be able to fight and win two wars at once. Okay, yeah. That is, in the Second World War, they fought the Nazis in Europe, and they fought the Japanese in the Pacific. And they fought them basically as separate wars, and they won them both at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and after that, that became America's kind of military doctrine, that a war could happen in, in Europe and a war could happen in Southeast Asia and they could go and fight them both at the mm. same time and win both, mm. right? Well, that's no longer possible with the great powers. This is, this is something that just in recent years, the Americans have started to look at revising. They're like, okay, could we win a war against Russia in the Baltic state and China in Taiwan at the same time? If Russia mm. invaded... Lithuania and China invaded Taiwan. Yeah. Ugh, right? Because they require radically different force structures to deal with. Mm. Uh, they have different interests and focus and issues that arise from it and different levels of commitment and so forth. So it's not clear that that's possible. And now it's a military objective, a foreign policy objective of the United States not to be in that situation. Mm. I will go into depth about this subject in the next video. Uh, when I explore the changing military doctrine and what it means for Lithuania and Taiwan, because they are linked in that way. Uh, the, the, the complicating factor for the United States, and again, you know, some of this will be repeated, is that its most loyal allies in Europe, its most competent allies, are the ones most at threat from Russia. So the Baltic states, Poland, these are the ones pulling their weight in the NATO alliance. You know, yeah. we've got France and Spain, they're basically dead weight. Um, even though they're much bigger countries, they're not really aligning themselves with American interests in the way that, you know, Lithuania clearly is. So uh, that does create a greater moral imperative for the United States to protect those countries uh, because they're the most loyal allies. Mm. Um, But they're also, unsurprisingly, the ones with the greatest external military threat, i.e. Russia. So this does create a, a military conundrum for the United States, which... Uh, the the Lithuania's 
actions in Taiwan has the effect of exploiting. But unlike some other news reports, I don't think that's the intention. I think that Lithuania isn't being, you know, looking at a geopolitical map and being like, hmm, this is going to increase America's commitment to us. No, I think it's more they just don't like communists. I think it's that straightforward. And they don't, and they like Taiwan because it's a democracy resisting a much larger communist power and they feel that they're kin and yeah. they can relate to that, that mentality. So um, I think that's what it's about. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. I think that's all the time we have for today. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have any questions, any feedback, please leave them down below. We do read comments. Um, yep. I've had a couple of fans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so shout out to all our fans. <laughs> Otherwise, stay safe. Ciao for now.